you look at civil rights history, there are key events. And, and if you start to mark them off in terms of Rosa Parks and obviously the March on Washington, Selma, these various things, it's on that short list. And I don't want to make it seem as reductive as that, but I need to in the sense of, of all the things happening during the civil rights movement, this is on that short list of events that really did shock the conscience, as Simeon Booker said, that really, and by shocking the conscience, Black Americans knew this is their daily reality. It was a matter of shocking the conscience of white America, frankly, because, you know, the Eisenhower administration was dragging its feet in the mid to late 50s in terms of civil rights, and you had to rattle people that way. That's one reason why, even though Brown v. Board of Education was 1954, the crucial and ambiguous sentence in the decision was that, you know, we need to desegregate schools with all quote unquote, deliberate speed. Well, they were more deliberate than speed, if you will. And, and that's why, you know, school integration took many years to, to really come about and still never fully has. But the fact that you need to, to prod and to push, and this is the kind of film that does prod and does push. Hello, and welcome to At The Movies with Mike and Marie, a show where two film professors talk about movies. I'm Marie Westhaver. And I'm Mike Giuliano. Today, we're gonna talk about Till and Tar, the two T movies that are out in the theaters right now. We're going to start with Till, a very tough movie to watch. Most people who know that it's out there also know what the story is about, which is the murder of Emmett Till. And it comprises 27 years research by Keith Beauchamp. So he put a lot of work into making it accurate, finding out facts that could be dramatized to make a movie that told this brutal story. But Mike, where, where should we dive in with Till? Well, on a personal note, I actually talked with somebody who not only did research, but did the original reporting on this case. A reminder, of course, that Emmett Till was a 14-year-old boy living in Chicago with his mother, still had relatives down south in Mississippi, was sent there, you know, essentially a, a vacation trip, if you will, went into a store by almost any account of this he whistled when he was in the store, and, and the white uh, store clerk, Carolyn Bryant, took it the wrong way, as they say. And, and uh, actually, in her account, she made it into a lot more than it ever really was. But in any event, the, the kid was being a kid and then, you know, maybe whistled or something. But in any event, as a consequence of that, you know, the child is kidnapped, hideously tortured, murdered. It's a key incident in the, the modern civil rights movement. The personal note in terms of not so much subsequent research as on-site reporting is in 2013, I met the African-American journalist uh, Simeon Booker. He was 95 years old when I met him. He lived to be 99. He had just published his autobiography, Shocking the Conscience, a reporter's account of the civil rights movement. And Booker described to us what the incident was all about. This is a crucial thing in terms of how we know what we know. Simeon Booker was writing for Jet Magazine, which was really important within the Black community at that time. Jet and, and Ebony, along with the Black newspapers, uh, you know, like the Chicago Defender and the Baltimore Afro-American and so on. And these things actually are, are referenced within the film, if briefly. But in any event, when Booker was describing this, he mentioned that, you know, he and the photographer, David Jackson, went down to Mississippi, and he was really the first reporter to interview Mamie Till. And the really famous or infamous photograph, the horrifying photograph of Emmett Till in his coffin, that was shot by, by Jackson. And so it was this reporting team of Simeon Booker and David Jackson who really did that initial investigative work 
And from there, it went worldwide. So the photos reproduced everywhere. The accounts went on. And the research Marie references is, is built upon that. What I want to do is actually, I went back and read through Booker's autobiography again, the section dealing with Emmett Till. And bear in mind that um, uh, Mamie Till, the mother, was looking to him for guidance as much as anything. She knew that this story had to go out, and she was wondering how best to convey that to the world. So he was there to interview her and take it down, but also, frankly, was kind of, I won't say coaching her, because that, that's an unfair way of putting it, but just talking with her about how we can get the word out to the world at large about what was done to your son. And so it was really so heartbreaking to hear this account firsthand because, you know, think about this. Here's the mother looking down at the mutilated body of her son and Simeon Booker standing right there with them. And they're going through this experience together. So here's actually something taken directly from Booker's autobiography. Quote, the body was as ghastly a sight as most people will ever see. It looked as if someone had set about to destroy any vestige of its humanity, close quote. And then as he stood there by the body, because the, the body, well, we, we can go into to more detail if we need to. It's just horrifying detail. But as he and Mamie looked down at the body, this is what struck him about a mother looking down at her, her dead son. Quote, I did not know how she could do it. I had to look away. I had never seen anything so gruesome so hideously unspeakable in my entire life. And this was the woman's son, close quote. And then as he, as he asked Mamie, well, you know, how should we proceed from here? Or how are you going to proceed from here? His assumption, Booker's assumption was because of the disfigurement of the body, that it would be a, a closed casket ceremony. They were going to take the body back to Chicago. His assumption was it would be a closed casket. And the viewing, if you will, is, is, is just to see the casket itself. It was Mamie Till who spoke up and startled Booker when she said, she said, no, no, no. She said, I want a, an open casket. She said, I want the world to see what they did to my boy. And so then when they took it back to Chicago, tens of thousands of people filed by to view it. And then, of course, you know, thousands of people at the funeral. So in terms of the modern civil rights movement, and this is something from 1955, it's one of the most significant events of that period. And as Booker points out a little further in his autobiography, he said, you know, this was really the end of Jim Crow. We were approaching the end of it, but we didn't quite know that yet. And it's really compelling in his book where he says, you know, when you're in the moment, 1955, you think how much worse can it get? You're not thinking Jim Crow's over. But he said, in retrospect, it was one of the things that marked the, the beginning of the end, if you will, for Jim Crow thinking, and, and of course, by extension, laws. And as he points out in his book, it was just 100 days after the murder of Emmett Till that Rosa Parks made her monumental decision on the bus. And so all of this is escalating very quickly at the time. So the film really has tremendous value as a history lesson. It's just really, it is difficult to watch, but it's essential to watch it. Yeah, it is tough to watch. I do want to mention that one of the things I was grateful for is that they do not show you, they don't dramatize the actual beating and murder of Emmett Till. That happens off screen. You don't have to sit through that. And actually, I was in a quite a full theater, which was very lively before the movie started. People talking and laughing all through the previews. And then the minute that movie started, everybody went still. You didn't hear, you could have heard a pin drop. And I felt like everybody was there to bear witness because 
you already know how it's going to end and you know it's going to be upsetting because there was no real justice as far as the trial went. But the depiction of her decision to do the open casket, that's that's what everybody remembers, that she decided to to do that. And in the movie, she says, no one will believe what I just saw because she goes in to identify the body. So therefore, we're going to make people look at it. And I thought that that shot where you very slowly sort of circle what she's looking at and then you finally get to see what she is looking at. I thought that was masterfully done. How about you, Mike? I agree with you completely here because I wondered heading into it. I mean, I, I've looked at the photograph itself many times and, and it's such a, an odd sensation because, you know, you're looking at it, you know, you need to see this photograph, but you also, of course, want to look away. And, and it's that sort of, you know, odd kind of thing of wanting to look, but wanting to look away because it's just too gruesome to really contemplate. And it's the kind of photograph, every time it sees you, it will always shock you. The shock of it never goes away. So what I wondered heading into the film as well, are they going to show it straight on that way? And in terms of showing it straight on, what we're getting at here is, you know, the degree of torture that took place, you know, leading up to his actual murder. They had a cotton gin fan. By they, I mean the white guys who did this to Emmett Till. And, and that, that was, you know, tied to him with barbed wire, several feet of barbed wire around him, just, you know, hideous disfigurement. And then, of course, after all that torture and, and the murder, you know, tossing the body in the water and so on, it was just by the time it was pulled from the river, well, I won't say more. It's just, it was that gruesome sight. And so anyway, heading in to watch the movie, like I think almost anyone, I wondered, well, are they going to show that straight on? How should they handle it? This is a creative decision as you do a fictionalized version of, of a real life horror story, basically. And Marie used the, the perfect phrase. It was a masterful way of handling it because, you know, the movie is rated PG-13. And, and, and I, I admire that in the sense that this is a movie that everyone should see and, and, and should be able to see, if you will. You know, it could easily have had an R rating like that in terms of, you know, showing graphic, graphic violence. But the fact that it's very deliberate in setting it up so that we most people kind of sort of know at least how awful it would be. And it takes you into that. But then when it comes time for the actual viewing, and this is what Marie was talking about, you know, open casket, the, the camera movement itself is oblique and subtle and kind of nuanced. And yet there is the crucial moment where, yes, it does show you and in effect show you just enough of the full horror. So it's not shying away from that. It will show that to you, but it's it's not wallowing in it. By wallow, I mean, it's not going to like be a held shot for two minutes or something, which could be justified in a way, like, here it is, look at it, don't look away. But I thought what worked to advantage here is the fact that it showed you just enough that between your recollection of the actual photograph and your imagination, you can fill in all the horrible details. What matters most here is not so much whether you show that image in, in the casket straight on. What matters more is not so much a close-up of that as having yet another close-up of Mamie Till's face. You see in her face everything in effect that she's seeing in that casket. And I think that's part of the masterful movie because the movie ultimately is really about her. The actor playing Emmett Till is very good. He's very playful. He's very engaging, very likable. You see him in the early scenes in the film. Kids being kids, right? I mean, he kind of acts out and all, but the way kids will in their early teens, right? And so um, once he's gone from the picture, once, once he has become the, the murder victim, particularly from that point onward, it really is going to be the story of how the mother responds to this. And so at that point, you know, it's a very skillful performance because it's really restrained. And yet within the restraint, you can sense all the hurt and all the anger. And so when she is going to speak out, whether at the trial 
which is kind of a sham, but you know, but but you know, she's going to put herself through that at the trial or in speaking with the media. She has remarkable dignity and restraint under unimaginable circumstances, what, what she's feeling inside there. And those are the scenes from the midpoint onward in the film where it actually has a lot to do with how the media will relay this to, to the nation. And that's where there actually is a close-up shot of Jet Magazine with you know the, the cover story and, and all that. And Simeon Booker actually is name-checked once in, in the film. His name gets mentioned in one of the scenes. Oh, Mr. Booker, nice to see you kind of line. So the researcher for the film that, that Marie mentioned, I think, frankly, he should have done a little bit more to bring out the, the original reporting on this, but he does at least briefly acknowledge it in terms of how the word went out, because oftentimes in the early civil rights movement, a lot of crucial events were what I'd call underreported by mainstream, meaning white media. And it was through the black newspapers like the Baltimore Afro-American, the Chicago Defender, and so on, and through black magazines like Jet, that the word went out to the community within the black community to galvanize things. If you look at some of those early events, when they get covered by the white mainstream media, they oftentimes, they're not always page one news, if you will. But in the black media, those were the banner headlines. Those were the stories that really got attention. And I, I feel that the film, it's a really good film, but I felt that in terms of how the story was reported, how it got out there, it should have given more overt acknowledgement and recognition to the role of specifically black media here and, and, and getting that word out, because that really helped to galvanize the, the black community and force the white community to take notice. You can't put this on page three now, it needs to be on page one. You know, there were a couple of other things that I thought were done well in terms of telling the story. One is that from the very beginning, because you know what's coming, you know, obviously everybody knows the story. In the early scenes in Chicago with Mamie Till and her son before he goes to visit his cousins, Every now and then there would be this little note of foreboding in the soundtrack and the background sound, just this, you know, impending dread. You know, she was so worried about what would happen to him, justifiably so. And it kind of gives you that little frisson yourself that you're, you're also feeling the anxiety of what you know is about to come. I thought that was really well done. I also liked the scene in the courtroom where someone on the stand points out the men who did it. And so there's this, you know, shaking, accusatory finger pointing out the people responsible. That was a great moment. And then also there was the scene where they sort of panned through several different living rooms to show you different reactions to the news coming on the TV, which I thought was also a nice way of showing different reactions and how it played out in living rooms across America as the news broke. So for those reasons, I think it was a very, very well-crafted film. And Mike, do you think this is a Oscar contender? Well, I do for, for the obvious reasons in terms of not only the importance of the subject matter, but how well it's dealt with, certainly in terms of the principal performances and on a directorial note, just how well crafted it is there. And Marie, the one thing you just mentioned that I want to pick up on a bit more is, as I was saying earlier, the role of what is becoming modern media culture and getting a story like this out there. So this is 1955. If you think about subsequent civil rights events in terms of Rosa Parks, in terms of Little Rock, and on and on late 50s into the 60s, the importance not just of, as I've been mentioning, newspapers and magazines to get the word out there, but of course, increasingly television. And, and, you know, and then as, as you start thinking about into the 60s and things like Selma and so on, the importance of having the actual footage because you know you could you could have some 
redneck southern official downplaying or denying various things but then when you actually can watch the footage of you know the police roughing up the crowd and so on and that kind of a scenario where you know you can only lie so much on the witness stand or in in, in uh you know in interviews but when, when you actually have visual evidence to the contrary and that's why at the level of visual evidence that you know astounding photograph that horrible photograph of emmett till himself that's one of the most reproduced images of the civil rights movement, and it really galvanized people. And that's why when you look at civil rights history, there are key events. And, and if you start to mark them off in terms of Rosa Parks and obviously the March on Washington, Selma, these various things, it's on that short list. And I don't want to make it seem as reductive as that, but I need to in the sense of, of all the things happening during the civil rights movement, this is on that short list of events that really did shock the conscience, as Simeon Booker said, that really... And by shocking the conscience, Black Americans knew this is their daily reality. It was a matter of shocking the conscience of white America, frankly, because, you know, the Eisenhower administration was dragging its feet in the mid to late 50s in terms of civil rights. And you had to rattle people that way. That's one reason why, even though Brown v. Board of Education was 1954, the crucial and ambiguous sentence in the decision was that, you know, we need to desegregate schools with all quote unquote, deliberate speed. Well, they were more deliberate than speed, if you will. And, and that's why, you know, school integration took many years to, to really come about and still never fully has. But the fact that you need to, to prod and to push, and this is the kind of film that does prod and does push. And so, Marie, back to your question, you know, it certainly is, you know, the kind of film that is uh, remembered at, at the Academy Awards. And, and hence, you know, the release of the film is, is no coincidence. This is one of the major films coming out in the fall season. It's thinking about year-end awards, so certainly to get nominations for the lead performances. Uh, it probably will get a Best Picture nomination, I would think. That's a lock as well. But whether it gets, a, you know, a handful of Academy Award nominations or not, it, it is a film, you know, certainly put on your personal list of something you definitely should watch. I would say I'm not sure I would insist that people see it in the theater. I think it might be better experienced at home with a box of Kleenex. I also wanted to mention that I thought the, the lead actress, and I'm not sure if her name is Danielle Deedweiler or Deadweiler, but fantastic, really expressive face. They do a lot of close-ups of her agony. I think she's definitely a contender for the Oscar. But I also wanted to mention, it was a surprise for me when she is telling her mother that she's going down to Mississippi to, you know, expedite the, the next thing that's supposed to come. And, and her mother's rightly worried because even though she says to her mother, you know, I'm going to go down there because, you know, of what they did to my child. And her mother said, well, what about my child? And it wasn't until she said those words that I recognized that that was Whoopi Goldberg playing that role. I had the same reaction. I, I knew it was Whoopi Goldberg, but I had to remind myself that it was Whoopi <laughs> Goldberg. And that, that's a really good performance, isn't it? When you totally get into character, even though you're such a recognizable actor yourself. The one area where I differ a little bit is I think it actually does benefit from seeing it in the theater. And you alluded to this yourself earlier, to have that shared experience, the shared quiet, if you will. And so when I was watching it with a fairly crowded theater, it was a combination of, of like stillness, of silence as people absorb the horror of what happens there, but also occasionally of, of people voicing opinions or acknowledging, like in the courtroom scenes, you know, with some of that testimony, pro and con, I mean, people were vociferous in the audience and occasionally speaking out, you know, joining in. That's the give and take between the screen and the audience, if you will. And I think, again, if we're going to move forward as a nation, we need to move forward collectively. So there's nothing quite like being in, in, in a room with 
like-minded people who have the same strong feelings about what they're watching. And then the, the conversation continues in the lobby afterwards and hopefully continues once you hit the sidewalk and then certainly once you hit the voting booth and so on. These are crucial conversations to have. My final note about the movie is I thought the title was very clever because obviously it's his name, but it also makes me think of until, as in up until this point, you know, this was considered a catalyst for the civil rights movement. So till sounds like it's marking a point. And also the whole encounter happened over, you know, a cash register, apparently inside the store, you know, the till. So great use of many different aspects of how you can take that name. But we need to move on to Tar, our second movie with Kate Blanchett, where she plays a orchestra conductor, very talented and mer mercurial. Kate Blanchett is fantastic in this. What do you want to say about this movie, Mike? Well, I admire the director, Todd Field, for one of his, he's only made three feature films, oddly enough, but um, his film In the Bedroom from 2001 is a really, really good film. I use it in one of my courses. And, and so I've always admired him just on the basis of that one film, but this is only really his third feature film. I had mixed to negative feelings about it. Um, oftentimes it's extremely well done, technically. It's a well-directed film. And Kate Blanchett is fabulous. It's a great performance as uh, Lydia Tarr, the conductor who's, who's the center of the film. And what I, I did like about that as a characterization is we don't have to like her. I mean, I think it's a, I think sometimes it, it too much is made of the fact that we should like our protagonist. She's not a particularly likable protagonist. She's so egotistical. She's so vain. She's so monstrous in a lot of ways. The important thing is not so much that you like the protagonist as that you find her interesting. And she's very, very interesting as a protagonist. So that, that helped me with the film. So even though on, on filmmaking grounds, there's so much to admire here, the reason I hold back is simply that I think the film is just rife with overstatement. And I'll give two, one example I'll give and one I'll just allude to. The one I'll allude to is there are some developments very late in the film, which I can't go into detail about because it would be a series of spoilers, but there's some stuff that happens late in the film that's so extreme, that's so out there, that's so violent. I think, well, come on, I know it's taking a melodramatic turn, but you know, too much here. But what I can discuss openly is something occurring very early in the film. It's enough for us to know that Lydia Tarr is one of the world's most famous conductors. Bear in mind, this is a totally fictitious character, but there's a lot of real life name checking in the film. And, and if we world enough in time, we can go through all the details of that. But in terms of real life conductors and composers and on and on that way. So it's very close to historical as an even contemporary record of not just contemporary conductors, but female conductors. And for the moment, I'll let it go at that. But the overstatement at the beginning is, for instance, it's not enough that we should know that she's so world famous that now she's currently, as we see her in, at the beginning of the movie, she's now the conductor of the Berlin Philharmonic. That's like the, 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 peak, the top of the mountain. I mean, that's, that's on the very short list of greatest orchestras. So, the over, so that's fine, give her that as, as a character biography, but her background, she has previously been the conductor of, get this, Cleveland, Philadelphia, Boston and New York. And a friend of mine that I watched it with, who was a classical music uh, expert, actually, uh, and I'll let it go there, but, but who really knows the field, he laughed saying it's unintentionally funny because if you take the world-class conductors, I mean, the top of the top, these are guys, usually guys, not women, these are guys who at most would have conducted one or two of the world's major orchestras and then maybe gone to Berlin. But to have her lead like a handful of major, it just doesn't work that way. You don't 
do an analogy like with baseball or football or whatever, where somebody you could have a, a you know a really great player who had been on another team and one of the top teams and won the Super Bowl. But what do you have won like you know the Super Bowl five different times with five different top teams? You know what I mean? It's that kind of overstatement in the film, and I think that really hurts the film. It kind of cheapens it in a way. You don't need that sort of melodramatic excess to convey her story and her character. And so even though I was really with the film for about the first half or through the middle of it, as it got more and more extreme and more and more overstated, it started to leave me cold, even colder than Lydia is as a character. And so I ultimately sort of turned against the film, but but it's a fascinating film. I mean, it's definitely worth watching. I just think you may find yourself sort of at odds with the film in, in places. And also it's a very long film. It's 158 minutes. So when you start to lose your sympathy for the film, it's like a very long, slow movement in the symphony where you think, okay, okay, you know, you, lacrimos, you've worked the tears, you've worked the emotions, you know, let us go already, you know, do, do we need, you know, another hour of this, of this movement? Uh, so what do you think? Oh, I'm with you 100%, Mike. I thought it, in places it was simply turgid. It just got bogged down in its own storytelling. And I'm a fan of Todd Field as well. I really like Little Children. I think he knows how to set up a, an emotional moment, but it did not need to be that long of a movie. I'm not sure what I would have cut, though. Is there anything specific that other than I think it showed a lot of, you know, orchestra, which obviously that's what the movie is about. But I felt like that's where I felt it sort of bogged down. What do you think, Mike? I had a sort of mixed response to that because a lot of the actual day-to-day -day of an orchestra rehearsing and working with conductors and composers and this and that, a lot of that was well-observed, oftentimes overstated. But, but I love like when she's rehearsing Mahler's Fifth, which, you know, is like the one great Mahler she hadn't recorded yet. And I love that some of the inside baseball references where she tells the players in rehearsal, forget Visconti, she, you know, forget Death in Venice, you know, forget how this has been used before. Here's how we're going to do it. There are a lot of little moments like that in the film where, you know, they have done their homework, maybe too much homework even. They've done their research. And some of that probably could have been cut. And that's then a decision of, gee, these are two good scenes. Which of the two do we cut here? Some of the melodrama gets played out too much. Like, you know, I'm not spoiling anything to say this world famous female conductor is at a crisis moment where she has been, you know, a mentor to some young female soloists and maybe more than a mentor. And, and, and so she's getting into, you know, it's a me too kind of moment. It's important that that's in the film. I think sometimes the film just really draws that out and just has too many repetitive scenes where the point's been made that way. And I think some of that material could probably be uh, cut out or, or cut back, certainly. There's just too much of it. And it just, you know, it gets really drawn out. But the central relationships are interesting because she does have a, a female partner and they have a child together. And it's her partner, who's actually the concert master in Vienna, who at one point in an argument they're having says, well, for you, like all relationships are, are, are transactional. And that's actually one of the crucial scenes in the film, that whether you're falling in love and I'm your partner or whether you're looking to hire a soloist to play, it's all transactional. What you're getting from this relationship, what I'm getting from it. And the film does that very effectively, but you don't have to have like two and a half hours of that. You can easily cut back a bit. So yes, Maria, I agree. Some of the orchestral scenes that are well observed, you don't need to have all those, take some of them out. Some of the melodrama with the romantic partners and young students and this and that, okay, a few scenes would get the point across. You don't need to have it so drawn out. So just as the character herself is going off the rails and the conductor starts to lose it, she's kind of going off the rails. I think the film itself goes off the rails. I think even though I admired, you know, Todd Field's previous films, 
I think here he just pushes too far and at too great a length. He needed to hold himself back or hold himself in and cut some of it out. You don't need to put all that into the film. And that's a series of editorial decisions. You know, just tell yourself initially, we're going to cut a half hour and then be ruthless. And, and okay, we won't do Mahler's fifth. <laughs> Take something out. Yeah, you make really, really good points. I will say that I was impressed as a piano lessons dropout that Kate Blanchett had to relearn the piano, learned how to speak German, and learned how to conduct an orchestra for the film. And in those ways, she was completely believable. She really did a great job with that role. I don't think this is a film that's go going to find a home in many people's you know, DVD collection to watch and rewatch. But I think we will see her at least nominated for Best Actor, Best Actress in the next Academy Awards. This film is getting a lot of media attention. Not all of it positive, but still media attention. She will definitely receive an Academy Award nomination, and she deserves it. It's a fabulous performance, and she learned the music. She knows how to conduct. She knows how to play. I mean, she taught herself all these things. It's really impressive the amount of work she put into it. We don't like her as a character, but we admire the actress for everything she does here. And that brings us to the end of this episode. But don't forget to check out our other episodes at dragondigitalradio.podbean.com and under Dragon Digital Radio on Pandora and Spotify. And we will see you next time at the movies. See you then. Connect with us. We are Dragon Digital Radio.